Welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of Comic Book Herald, and I'll be interviewing some of my favorite creators in comics about specific runs, graphic novels, or series looking for their insights on the work. Today, I'm excited to welcome Ram V, co-creator of The Savage Shores, a five-issue series from Vault Comics. The Savage Shores is set in mid-1700s England and primarily India, looking at the impact of colonialism on the region and adding in elements of vampire and demon mythology to a gorgeously constructed work. Ram, thanks so much for joining. Can you kick off and tell us a little bit about how this comic came to be? Yeah, my uh, my pleasure to be here, Dave. Um, and uh, sure, I mean, these seven chores kind of came to me pretty much like most of my ideas do in bits and pieces from random places. Uh, and then it seems almost like all that taking in of content reaches some kind of critical mass and then I end up with an idea. So um, the original roots of the idea is probably from me researching um, Indian mythology and I was looking into Rakshasas, which is, I mean, it's always been a general area of interest for me. Um, and I was looking into the Rakshas mythology and I realized that on a, on a fundamental level, the Rakshas, uh, which is an Indian mythological monster, um, works a lot like a vampire. They, they yeah. live in forests and dark places. They come out at night, they attack unsuspecting strangers and drink their blood. Um, and there seems to be some variation of this for most mythologies, uh, to be honest. Uh, yeah. And so out of that interest, I went back and said, okay, let me look at the first mention of a vampire in European mythology. And I realized that the Indian mythology version predates the European mythology version by about 200 years. Um, okay. so, so we'll leave that there. And then much later, I was watching on TV, I was watching this show called Taboo, which is a uh, Tom Hardy production. And it kind of deals with uh, the East India Company and their activities, but focused more, uh, I believe, uh, in, in America and then and then parts of it uh, in Africa as well. So um, watching that and then all of a sudden having had this vampire thing sitting in the back of my head, uh, it just seemed to click and I went, okay, I have a story to, to write. Uh, and beyond the obvious metaphor of, hey, colonialism is same as vampirism, um, yeah, it right. really gave me that kind of canvas to, to sit down and talk about Indian history through this interesting supernatural genre lens. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, I, I did think like probably the one overarching metaphor that literally every reader can can walk away with is colonialism is a vampiric presence towards yeah. Indian throughout history, right? Like yeah. it's a... Yeah. I, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know that I've ever seen it stated so eloquently, but at the same time, it seems it's just like, oh, yeah, like I feel like, you know, a, a, a high schooler like coming to the rev a revelation of metaphor in, in Shakespeare, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, I see that yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, a fun. lot of a lot of these ideas, the, the ones that I get really excited about are ones that when I have them and I check and go like, surely someone's done this before. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It's so obvious. And then you check and you realize no one's done it. You're like, Oh, I have one of those ideas that is really obvious, but no one's done it. Yeah. Which, <laughs> right. Which makes it stand out for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really, really works. 
Um, so it, along the same lines, the story kicks off in 1766, uh, closely following, you know, that East India Trading Company in India yeah. with this focus on exploring, um, you know, it, you really put an emphasis on exploring the Indian leadership and, and culture mm -hmm. and, and history, mm -hmm. which I think is it adds it. It's inherently way more interesting to me because it's a perspective that sure. I haven't gotten as much insight in throughout just my own life and education. So I right. I was definitely like, OK, yes, this is this is way more interesting to me. Um, what is it about this time period and approach to the story that that really engaged you? I mean, uh, a lot of people, it's again, it'll be obvious when I mention it, but a lot of people don't realize that India wasn't India until the British left and in 1947 declared it to be a country. Uh, so technically, India was just a group of feuding states that were never a single country before 1947. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think a lot of people realize that, firstly. And so I, I wanted to really look at why would it be so easy to come in and, and take over such a large historic piece of land where, you know, civilizations have existed for years for the British to, to come in on a few ships and bring in a few armies and take it over seems like a almost an impossible task. but really the way they went about it was they didn't do much they just played everyone against each other mm. and made uh deals of sort of convenience uh with with a lot of the princely states that were there at the time sure. um so i think that was important for me to to express um the other aspect of it that i found super interesting was this understanding that and a lot of people have it today um i have this kind of morbid curiosity uh to look in on people having really ridiculously racist discussions online um <laughs> just out of interest to see like okay where does this come from right and yeah my my that's a deep dark rabbit hole definitely it is yeah. it is but but my understanding is there is a fundamental ignorance mm -hmm in these people, like they don't know history, right? Um, and and the, the claim is that the, the colonizer, the imperialist went into these places in the world that were not progressive, that were savage, that were, uh, that didn't have technology or didn't have knowledge or, or diplomacy or, or politics. And then the imperialist went over there and showed them the light of civilization is the idea right. right whereas hopefully when you read this book you get a sense of oh my god like there were really complex empires here yeah with people who had survived uh so many changes of of rulership uh, in time and so there were countries with with rich histories with rich technological advancements and and um, socio-political advancements that if you then think about the whole thing with that context you realize that oh if this group of people had been left alone had never been exposed to colonialism and imperialism as such the world might have pieces of poetry pieces of art pieces of politics pieces of literature that are so fundamentally different from what we consume right now sure we've lost an entire train of thought each time a civilization gets colonized yeah yeah no that's that's really that's really interesting and that definitely comes out in the work i think that's 
I mean, we, we've been seeing a similar thing, or I should say, I've been seeing a similar thing here post, uh, you know, the George Floyd murders in, in the States yeah. in yeah. regards to black history in America. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and like you're saying that fundamental ignorance, that definitely is something that I'm reconciling with myself. Things like, um, the, the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre yeah. of, of black wall street, things like that, that I had not heard of until, uh, uh, Watchmen you know um on HBO, yeah but that's right? the that's the beauty of human existence right mm -hmm. we are fundamentally curious creatures like the human being is the only animal that would look at something and go ah how does this work rather than how can i get food from it or how can i use it to to mm -hmm. be more powerful how can i have shelter um and so largely the ignorance is not because of some kind of lack of human curiosity or endeavor it's because we live in these systems that make it comfortable for us to be ignorant yeah. of these things yeah. uh and so and as I, I believe that is a fundamental duty of art is to make people uncomfortable uh, and go hey i'm 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 hopefully shaking you hard enough to to go you should look at this and you should be curious about why people want statues taken down. You should be curious about why people say uh, they've, they've lived in a system of slavery for hundreds of years. Uh, and so I think part of the reason for making this book was to go, oh, you like vampires, do you? Great, here's some Indian history to go along with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it tricks you into, uh, into learning something along the way. Right, which is, which is great, which is, which is essential too good art um and, and i think one of the the most interesting inversions that stands out initially is the the first issue and we'll be getting into spoilers a little bit i think as we as we talk about the work um but the first issue there's this setup of a, a somewhat familiar almost uh from hell style you know this this high uh, elitist british yeah. person right whatever their lord whatever their status is um yeah. that he is a vampire right and there's this sense that everything's building towards okay he's going to be uh, jettisoned to india where now this vampire can prey on mm -hmm. on these you know poor people that have been subjugated and what you do i think that is awesome is you invert that and actually there's like you're uh, i don't know that it's a fair equation but like you're saying that hey india would have its own art and its own mm -hmm. its own culture without you it has its own vampire. It has its yeah, own mythology, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and it's a stronger one. And it, and it really, really works. One thing I was particularly captivated by was there's these many origins of yeah. the Rakshasa, um, yeah. it, the way you're building that mythology. What was your interest in in sort of uh, giving the, giving it this like almost fairy tale like background, but but obfuscating like any true definitive origin? You know, what, what were you playing with there? Sure. I think, I mean, I think taking away that definitive origin makes it easier for that character to, to work as part of the metaphor. Right. Um, because if I make that character tangible, like, okay, this is his origin story. This is who he is. This is where he's been living since, you know, then yeah. suddenly that's a, that's an object with a, with a definite definitive shape and a boundary that you can then put aside and go, Oh, that's just a person. Mm -hmm. But because he doesn't have this defined boundary and because he almost, you could almost say he is just all of mythology from that region, then yeah. it becomes on, on some level, when you start thinking about the metaphor, you go, oh, okay, I get it. 
this is their history. Bishan is the history of this place. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose he's meant to be evocative of, of kings and demons and, and gods. Uh, and it plays later on into an argument that, again, spoilers, uh, into an argument that he has with the big bad vampire from, from London, who's this Count Jure Grano, where essentially European vampires look at themselves as an evolution of man. They go, we are evolved from this thing, therefore we are better than it. Mm -hmm. And so we must feed on it. Of course, it's a, it's a lesser creature that we feed on. Whereas if you look at it from Bishan's point of view, the Rakshas is already this beautiful, great thing that then bequeathed its world to human beings. So then the understanding is it is better to be a human being than to be me. Mm -hmm. And now if you take that to the metaphor of, of colonialism, the colonizer always thinks he is better than the thing that he is colonizing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take the place itself and the history of the place itself. The history of the place looks at its own people and goes, no, these are the the descendants. These are the uh, inheritors of my legacy. And so that's looking at India from two opposite points of view. Yeah. Um, the vampire, AKA the colonialist and Bishan, AKA its own history, if you will. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense i one piece that i was gonna say for later but i think connects to that is one thing that stands out in that final battle between the rakshas and and this english kind of more like traditionally media-friendly vampire right the, the almost right. the count dracula kind of thing right he's a literal right. count um even for the quote-unquote survivors of of colonialism like there are these lasting wounds right and right. ultimately in this instance like this is dealt with through violent revenge um, right. in this final vampire battle. So in order to conquer this this English vampire, the Rakshas has to essentially transform into an even more horrid monster, right? Sure. It has to absorb and, and become something even worse. Yeah. Uh, what was your, Can you kind of talk through like the thinking on that sequence and what, what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it follows along the same metaphor, which is to say, you know, it's easy for people to come in and look at India and, and say, oh, look at all its flaws. It's such a poor country. There's so much poverty. There's so much inequality. Um, and, and I guess part of that you can trace back to its colonial history. And you can say that, no, it is this way because it had to become this way to deal with years and years of oppression. Yeah. Is this way because the fundamental lines of inequality and division were drawn during the British era of rule. And you, you can look at a country now and, and pity it for its, for its flaws and monstrosities, if you will. But you don't like, 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 for example, people come from Europe to India and they do poverty tourism. Like they go okay. through slums in India and they go, Oh, this is what it's like to be really poor and live in like shanty towns. How, how wondrous. And my point is that, yeah, those, they exist because for 200 years, this country wasn't allowed to have its own resources go to its own people. Uh, and so you're absolutely right. That metaphor is exactly what it sounds like that these countries had to become 
warp terrible monstrous things and do terrible things to their own people because that's how they dealt with the baggage of that colonialism left them with yeah um like yeah. a lot again not a lot of people know this but the the reason i chose the port of calicut uh, as as kind of the staging ground for this whole thing is that port pre east india arrival i think did close to 23% of the world's trade through that single port yeah that is a that is a lot of money going through a very small piece of land can you like you can only imagine how prosperous that place must have been sure um there were there were trading sort of bastions for portuguese traders french traders traders from arabia bringing coffee um the french had like military installations on the grounds of that port it was genuinely like at a, at a date and time when we go like oh my god look at london people from all over the world are here like this is 1760s and it had it genuinely had people from all over the world coming there yeah yeah it must have been must have been such a beautiful place right right now for sure yeah that is that is absolutely fascinating and again like i think it's that it's that history that it gets lost but then it's also it, one thing i'm definitely finding as i get a little bit older and and just you know a little bit wiser here and there day by day is just like how how much this history still matters you know i think yeah. it, it's everything you're saying it's just like oh it's hundreds of years ago so long ago things are different now and it's like no just the legacy and and the ways that has played out over time it's like yeah. it is it is so it is so influential and i think yeah that's one definitely vein this book taps into to use a yeah half unintended metaphor <laughs> <laughs> um so all right so in terms of craft i think uh these saboteurs features a very deliberate framework set within mm -hmm. the nine panel grid and yeah. it, it, i'm curious it, obviously the nine panel grid is something that like as comics fans as critics as as creators it's got this legacy of, of watchmen and everything else and it always sure. it gets everyone's attention however it's used right definitely when in the process did you decide like to really lean into that that sort mm -hmm. of formula and is it determined by the story or is it more like your creative itch to to play with it um actually it's it's determined i mean i'll answer the last part of the question first it's determined as from from the from the idea of what it can accomplish as a tool of storytelling mm -hmm. and i think part of the reason why people don't talk about this enough is because it is mired in all its history and, and people talk about Watchmen. Okay, you put all of that aside, right? You put aside the history of the nine panel grid and just ask, what does the nine panel grid do in comics? Now, very early on, I built an understanding of design, comic book page design in a way, if you look at the reading speed of a reader when they're reading a comic, and you go through a page, you tend to linger for longer periods on wider panels, and you tend to read narrower panels or thinner panels that much faster. Uh, it's a natural tendency because the eye is going from left to right. So if you went for a longer period from left to right versus a shorter period, your reading speed varies accordingly. What that does is when I then take it to a nine panel grid, I am forcing you to read every panel at the same pace. Mm -hmm. So it feels almost like a metronome. Da, 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 mm -hmm. da. And 
regardless of what I throw in that panel, your brain then gets used to reading it in that way. And then when I go into that grid and I say, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to combine these two panels and make them one image. I am now forcing you to linger on that image a little bit longer than you're lingering on any other panel. Right. And that gives you a very interesting and predictable way of designing pacing in your book. Uh, and so that's why I use the nine panel grid. Um, sure. Creatively, it lets you do a lot of interesting things with page design visually, but on a fundamental level, it's that metronomic reading pace that is being dictated by the grid, which is why it never feels, even in moments of action, it never feels like the book is rushing forward or even in moments of like where things are slow and people are just talking to each other. It never feels like the book is dragged on because you're always reading at this pace. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's actually something that I, that I felt reading this in, in another way that really plays into like sort of forcing you to focus and, and spend the required time with the text. Yeah. Um, is is the lettering right? So like you and uh, Aditya Bidikar, the letterer here, uh, mm -hmm. there's a, there's this wide variety of hand like hand lettered cursive, or at least it feels yeah. hand lettered. Um, yeah. You know, taking various styles to to both reflect like the the communications of the time between British officers or whoever it might be, um, yeah. but also just like to really immerse readers in the world. I definitely have, I'll admit, like an initial reaction to, oh no cursive i have to yeah. like focus my eyes right and it and it it can be kind of challenging um requiring yeah. that extra layer how much of that is a conversation with you and the letterer here adita to to say like i want to make people focus or is it more aesthetic just like this fits the time i mean in general i am very much for the idea that people have to put in work to read yeah. something um passive consumption is a very bad idea then you don't question what you're consuming you don't engage with it in interesting ways um i believe that if you can coax your reader into doing some work when they're reading your book they engage with it that much more it becomes that much harder to put down because now you're solving a puzzle now you're doing something rather than letting stuff kind of impinge upon your eyes if you will um it's the same thing with TV, right? So if you're just watching something in the background, you're not really paying attention to it. It's just happening. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's a film where you're trying to solve a plot. You're trying to solve a murder. You're trying to figure out what's happening with, you know, six layers of dreaming within each other. Like you're watching Inception. You can't, you can't disengage from that. You can't just watch it and go, yeah, it's floating in front of my eyes. Right. Uh, and so and, and <laughs> trying to do yeah. 10 other things, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so my endeavor is always to create art that you can't just kind of do on the side. I hate it when people say, oh, yeah, I went down, sat down on the pot this morning and finished a comic book issue. Yeah. Like, no, that's not that's not the reading experience. That's not what it's meant to be. Uh, even if it's 24 pages, you should get at least a solid 20, 25, 30 minutes out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so my endeavor has always been to do that. Uh, and... The lettering comes in from from a lot of different places. Part of it, yes, yes, let's make people do the work. Let's make people figure out and read. There's even scripts in there that are not in English. And people yeah. have then gone through, found out what that language was and got the translation done and all of that. So it's, it's quite nice uh, to, to see that you can encourage people 
and it's, it is for some people not all people will do it but some will and that's sure. that extra layer of reward there for putting in that work if you will um so part of it was that part of it was also that we were sort of nodding to the uh, bram stoker's dracula because that is an, uh, an epistolary novel uh, entirely written in journal entries and through letters going back and forth. Uh, and so we thought, hey, we can do that with a comic. Instead of having caption boxes, the characters kind of ruminating on their, by themselves, let's use this thing that lets you do a lot of interesting things and in that, yes, it's someone's internal thoughts because that's what you do when you write a letter, you're kind of writing down your internal thoughts. Yeah. But it's also separated in time. Like the person and what they're doing right now is ahead in time from when that letter was written. Right. And so you're able to reflect on the future while you're reading the letter and that adds another level of storytelling and you can do lots of interesting, tragic things with it. Like someone in a letter is going, hey, we'll meet you know, a week from now in this place and we will share some food by a fire and you're reading that letter as one of those people is dying and will never come back. And there's an extra layer of tragedy because you right. go, Oh, they were supposed to meet. Um, and so it let us do that as well. Uh, the, the lettering decision came to me when Aditya came in and said, Hey, what if for each of these voices, we had a different style? Like we knew we wanted to do cursive handwritten lettering, but the idea to go to a different style with each character, like that came from Aditya. And if you notice this, this style kind of varies with the character as well. Like Pierre Font's writing is very regal. It's very graceful. Uh, but then the vampire hunter writes and that writing suddenly becomes a lot more jagged edges and kind of less cursive in it, in itself. So yeah. I think there's a lot of personality in, in that lettering as well. Yeah, no, for sure. It definitely stands out. And it's like, you're saying, it's a thing that, I, I definitely, I admit to that layer of like almost being, um, hesitant to engage, but then once I get, you know, and that's just my own sort of, uh, sure. things going on, right. It's just kind of the things everybody's dealing with. Um, but then once you get going in it, you're fully immersed. And I, I think, it's yeah, true. yeah. It's I, harder to get out of something that you had to put work to get into. Yeah. Right. Right. Now it's like, don't bother me. I have to, <laughs> I, have yeah, to read this. Yeah. I have to go all the way. Um, I, you mentioned the vampire hunter, which actually I find interesting now, uh, in the middle of this conversation, what uh, what role does the vampire hunter play in the metaphor? I'll admit to sort of a, a definite lack of clarity. Uh, it's not something I had really interrogated. Like it, that character's just, I, I'll admit, like I didn't really come away with why, what, what is that presence, I, I guess? That presence is the, is the person watching this stuff happen, right? Yeah. Like, like to me, I refuse to believe that everyone in England sitting at the time and watching the East India Company do these terrible things was going, yeah, of course that's correct. Of course they should be doing this. No, there must have been people who looked at it and went, I'm not sure this is right. Like, this is not cool. I don't think we should be going into other countries and kind of exploiting their resources this way. Yeah. And the vampire hunter is really sort of that voice. Cause I think most people are, are in that place. Most people are, they come from a place, he comes from a place of ignorance. He goes, of course, vampire equals evil, so I must kill it. Yep. And so he finds this Rakshas and he goes, oh, it must be evil too, so I must kill it. Mm -hmm. It comes from that place of ignorance. And the longer he spends, he gets, you know, 
he tries to do it, he fails, he goes into prison, he starts observing how these people live, how this creature exists, and his opinion of this creature changes. Mm -hmm. And so when he comes out of prison, he goes, I don't know what's good and bad anymore. Maybe we're all monsters. Maybe we're all good men. But I'm fighting for what I believe in right now, which is a much better thing to fight for than fighting for nations or national heritage or history or color of your skin or whatever. I would much rather people fight for their beliefs rather than fight for these edifices of what we're supposed to believe in. Because the moment you edify something, you're you're sanctioning ignorance. And, and that's really the transition of the vampire hunter who goes from a place of ignorance, indoctrinated belief in fighting evil almost, and then comes to realize that Okay, is this really evil? I'm not so sure. Very good. Okay, that's I appreciate that explanation. That makes a, a lot of sense in retrospect. Um, do you have any plans or interest in in returning to the world of these savage shores, or is it for you a uh, uh, you know story that's been told? Uh, I think it has to be a story that that has that kind of finite ending for it to make sense. Yeah. If it becomes this thing that can continue, then the metaphor loses all, all value. Um, the, the finality of the repercussions of what happens through the first four issues is what makes the first four issues important. If that finality doesn't exist, and if we continue to say that, oh yeah, we're exploring the story further, then what's the point? What, what, did I, what did I say through the first five issues, you know? Yeah. I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of not to. I, I think once you have something that you really like, and I really like these Savage Shores, the the inclination is always to say, "Give me more of that thing." Right? We see this in, in pop culture all the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and definitely there is the same thing I talked about. Like name the, name a great pop culture phenomenon that we have benefited from more of. <laughs> right. Exactly. No. Exactly. Like it's <laughs> it's good for things to have endings. A hundred percent. Um, yeah. and, and generally speaking, it's better when they don't come back, uh, you know, yeah. like, a like an undead vampire, just, just yeah. that yeah. last fix. So no, I'm, I'm totally on board. I'm just hearing you talk about the history of India and this mythology mm -hmm. that I think is so interesting. It's, it, it has me wondering if there's a role to play in, like you mentioned, like in the forties when India becomes its own nation. And, yeah. and what does that look like, right? So obviously these are these are questions. But there, you know, there are other stories that that can and will deal with, like Midnight's Children deals with that. So <laughs> yeah, there, sure. there are clearly stories that that deal with that, and uh, and it will certainly be an endeavor of mine to include more Indian mythology in in any kind of work that I do. I mean, to be honest, I've done more work with some of the the, the sort of superhero publishers, and I'm now starting to hear them come to me and go. Hey, because you're from here and because you have this unique voice and this and this idea of what this actually means, yeah, can we start looking at bringing Indian mythology and mythological stories into this storytelling, which really hasn't like the only superhero I can think of in popular culture from these two companies that even touches on anything to do with Indian mythology is Doctor Strange. Uh, right. where where his origins of his power come from the region or whatever um but even that yeah, is in that way complicated yeah yeah, way that, yeah. You know, just traveling to this this mystical it's almost a, a kun loon it's almost like made up the way they yeah exactly they treat it. yeah and and so my response to that is yeah give me that stuff and i will infuse it 
with the truth that it needs rather than hand waving this you went to this mysterious place where a whole another group of human beings lives but who cares let's not talk about that <laughs> yeah so so uh, i think there is a lot more room for new mythologies and new points of view and new languages in pop culture in general and so it, it doesn't have to be just the savage shores's burden to carry uh that sort of flag of talking about india and talking about its history totally. i could i could do it in a million other places there you go no that's awesome yeah. i i think you would have a lot of very excited fans at a uh, a doctor strange announcement or many many other properties along those lines i know it was announced uh back in march that you were going to be writing uh, some thor for marvel yeah. uh, alongside yeah. empire and i there's been recent news or, or rumors that a lot of that stuff has been canceled. Do you have any update there? Uh, yeah, it's definitely not coming out because it is a casualty of the coronavirus restructuring that happened there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I understand that. I mean, Marvel reached out and they said, listen, it's going to be this because we had to restructure our schedule. So we're kind of sticking to the, the main line of books and then cutting down on the tie-ins, uh, which is you know, completely fair. It's their decision to make. Um, I did. There is a part of me that is a little bit annoyed by the fact that, oh, this is the first time we took what is clearly a, a, a sort of Western mythological character, right? right Thor. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't get more uh, Viking Norse mythology than that. Yeah. And the story that I was doing kind of, took that mythology and went, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clash it against Indian mythology. Yeah. And I'm gonna show you all the commonalities that exist. Surprisingly, I'm gonna show you all the commonalities that exist. And you're gonna go, Oh, I really didn't think the same mythological figures and elements existed anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, right. And so uh, I think there's an exciting train of thought to be had there. Um, but we'll have more opportunities to do that i'm sure it goes on it goes on the back burner for now okay that's a bummer i was really looking forward to reading that and hearing you talk about it i i would be even more so um but but hopefully there's something something along those lines uh in the future yeah. here yeah um it, along that same well i guess let me before i get to to what you do have coming in the pipeline yeah. It, yeah. so this work it, these savage horse has been pretty rapturously received and and for good reason right it's a it, it definitely resurfaced recently with the 2020 Eisner nominations and uh, the book was, was not nominated. Do yeah. you, do you, are you bothered by that lack of recognition on, on like the award level stage um, or kind of, how does that, how does that resonate with you as a creator? Um, no, to be honest, like uh, I have never cared about recognition in that, in that sense. Sure. Um, my award is my is is people and writers that are like Victor Laval posted about it and said, "Hey, like he DM'd me actually, and he said, "Man, I really enjoyed reading this. That was great." Yeah. And to hear that, like that, that is more valuable recognition for me. To be to be very very honest, yeah. Um, I think industry awards become mired with all sorts of constraints and restrictions and considerations. Uh, that exist entirely out of the frame of my uh, focus or thought process. Um, when I started writing in India, um, 
you know, before I professionally started doing this, I did a few short comics and a few issues of, of stories back in India too. Mm -hmm. And um, in India, there's this, there's this tendency of going, oh, here's someone from India doing something. Surely it can't be as good as someone from, you know, who's written for Marvel DC doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And so while the book that I was writing back in India for a couple of years was tremendously successful, um, there was never a sense of recognition shown my way until, you know, I left India and I went abroad and I started writing for Image and, and writing at Marvel and DC. And all of a sudden then they went, oh yeah, sure, he must be a really good writer to be able to do all that. Let's let's give him an award. So I think the award thing is is something that happens to you as a side effect of doing interesting work. Yeah. Um, and so I am far more concerned with what interesting work, how am I going to get people to sit up and take notice next year and the year after that and the year after that, um, rather than, okay, did someone recognize the fact that I did something cool? Yeah. Um, because the fundamental truth to that is when Karen Gillan posts going, Hey, I think the Savage Shore should have had a nomination. Like that is yeah. more valuable to me, uh, to be perfectly honest. And I hate sounding like someone who would, who would say this in a disingenuous way, but genuinely, even if you gave me an award, my reaction would be only mildly twitch from where it is right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, I can see that. And yeah, that's uh, getting that sort of creator recognition from people you respect definitely makes a lot of sense. Since you since you mentioned it, uh, you know, you mentioned writing in India and that not getting the um, the recognition right in the same way. And certainly that is something. But that only I... only industry recognition. It got recognition from from everywhere else. Like all the people who were reading it and other people in the industry who were creating books were again. Yeah all just going, oh, that's really cool that that it's nice to see someone do this kind of story. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think that's just, it's an industry-wide problem. It's a challenge. I, even stuff like manga, which is enormous, right? Tends yeah, to get yeah. short shrift in a lot of comics publications, myself included, right? It's just not been my experience. And, um, and look, at the, look at the Oscars buzz this year when people were talking about like, how come Queen and Slim didn't get a look in and the, the Oscars committee were like, to be honest, we get sent so many things. I don't think I've watched like how can you not watch something that was sent to you and then go oh yeah sure it might have deserved an award but i didn't see it but i'm busy right yeah <laughs> not not the so, best excuse uh so get, getting to those creators and, and work that's going there do you have yeah. um recommendations or or places that people sh writers uh publishers from india that that people should check out um i think i think it's a complicated question and complicated answer. I think there are really, really good artists in India mm -hmm. that publishers and, and readers from all over the world to check out, should check out. Uh, I think the comic book industry and writing in India has become, has been, has been kind of, it, it suffers from the after effects of being in the shadow of a much larger market like Marvel DC that has the same access to Indian readership. And yeah. so you see a lot of publishers in India wanting to do more Marvel DC-esque stuff, which just ends up being a paler copy of Marvel DC stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I would like to see much more original writing come from India. It exists in, in some places. Uh, 
like there's a there's a studio called Kokachi in India that does really interesting sort of indie comics. Uh, they do they did put out a collection called Mixtape, uh, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then there are individual creators, of course, doing super interesting work, writing super interesting comics. Uh, but the publishing of comic books in general as an industry has a lot of maturing and growing up to do uh, in India, in my opinion. So it becomes difficult for me to point to a publisher and say, hey, you should read everything that comes out from these guys. Sure, um, sure. But that said, absolutely try and find Indian artists. They are, there are so many out there. Like I'm working with quite a few of them. Uh, Sumit uh, Kumar, who did these have chores, of course. Yeah. Anand Radhakrishnan, with whom I did Graffiti's Wall, and uh, with whom I have the upcoming Blue and Green from Image this year. Um, and then I've worked with Dave Pramanik, who was the artist on Paradiso that came out from Image. Yeah. Uh, and so, so there's there's a lot of our links. I could name names, but I doubt people know them. Uh, but I would I would certainly recommend spending some time on Google and looking at Indian comic yes. book illustrators. Yeah. Yes, totally. No, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot and say, tell me, tell me everyone, you know, um, and that sort of thing. You know, I know that, that's the people. problem. Like I know tons of people, but yeah. I mean, if I say, okay, you should look up Salman Patel because he is really interesting. I don't think people are going to remember that rather than just Googling Indian comic book creators. And, and... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely something that I'm like making a point of this year is like you have to do the work, right? You have yeah. to you have to look and find uh, diverse yeah. talent across the board because it like, one thing that you know I read a lot of Marvel and DC stuff. Absolutely, it's what I cover. Um, mm -hmm. But it's like if they just read that, you're not getting the full profile of well, of even even profile. Marvel and DC. Like these habit chores happened. Lots of people looked at the art, they loved it, and then. DC came in and said, hey, Sumi, do you want to do a couple of issues uh, of, of Secret Files or Batman or whatever, yeah. or action comics? And I would, I would say, I would probably say that you're, you're one of the biggest publishers of comic books around. Like, why, why don't you have a presence in countries where there are all these artists that, that could be doing tremendous work? Yeah. But all, and all it takes is for you to go, hey, we have a online portfolio review for artists from this country submit mm -hmm. and and yeah sure it takes time but i i imagine if i could put in the time to find artists that i was interested in working with from an industry um like like most of these people i didn't meet them at a convention or anything i found them on the internet sure um, yeah and so if i can find them on the internet Shortly, everyone else you have access to the same uh, same research tools yeah, yeah. <laughs> in this instance. Yeah, no, that's a it's a great point for sure. No, and I, I think I look forward to seeing like you and and Sumit like his work on on these savage swords is is astounding. Um, I yeah. mean, like some even the it, just the way he depict. I mean, all the, like the the monsters and the using mm -hmm. the nine panel grid and inventive stuff there like really stands out. But even just like the depictions of animals, like there's there's some shots of a leopard that I was literally yeah. showing to my three year old son because he loves yeah, animals. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, check out this leopard. This is so cool, right? So it's yeah, it's awesome, awesome artwork. Um, yeah, and he's uh, he's one of those guys. He he loves going out to places in India and actually taking reference. He's a wildlife enthusiast as well. So. He got everything that was in his strong suit in terms of drawing uh, for the issue, uh, and it's surprising. But but he's super young too. Like he's like, I think he must be like 26, 27 now. Yeah. Uh, and and so 
I am I'm only looking forward to the anticipation in terms of imagine where he's gonna be, you know, six years from now. Yeah. In terms of his art. Yeah, it's gonna be amazing. For sure, for sure. That's awesome. Uh what uh what other works do you have on the horizon? Things you want to plug? You started talking about some of the, the image books, but what's coming up next? Yeah, so I have a few things uh, in terms of creator-owned stuff uh, that's coming out. Uh, Blue and Green, which is a noir, horror, jazz uh, story uh, set. Jazz, like it's like freeform style or about jazz music? It combines about stuff about jazz music and the and the atmosphere and the history around it okay. with noir and horror sensibilities. So I guess the best way to pitch it is imagine Whiplash meets Angel Heart. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So so that's coming out in October. Again, uh, part of what we try to, uh, what I try to do with each book is I don't feel like I should be putting out books that look like all the other books out there. So I feel like there's quite a unique voice and language to the visuals in this book as well, just as these aventures did. Uh, and so I'm uh, very excited for it to come out. It comes out in October. Uh, I have another book with Vault called Radio Apocalypse, mm -hmm. which it sees me return to my post-apocalyptic sci-fi obsessions. Um, but uh, with the twist that, um, yeah, sure, it's post-apocalyptic sci-fi, but it's actually the story of the last functioning radio station on the planet. Uh, and so it really is talking about the importance of music in the end times. Um, nice. My yeah. sort of my sort of fun pitch for that is the idea came to me when I was going, well, if the world were to end next week, what would I put on a mixtape? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So That's so awesome. super fun. Yeah. So, so it comes from there. It does for as, cool as fun as the apocalypse can be, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. get out and dance. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Hey, if that's the only thing that's left, you better do it. So, uh, <laughs> but no, it, it does this interesting thing where each issue is kind of staged around a song. Um, and it's written again, it does things with a medium. It's genuinely written in a way where you're supposed to play that song on your headphones while you're reading. Uh, and, and hopefully it adds to the experience. We'll see. I'll, I love that. Okay, cool. I've been, uh, there's some, I don't know if you like, play around with webtoon at all on um, the digital comics on there but uh, uh no, i haven't those, yeah oh it, it's kind of it's it's an interesting digital medium um but the, a number of those will come with soundtracks right and things like that where it's like okay as you as you scan the sound and it's i don't know it's like almost the simple thing that comics have been playing with but it's also super fun to add that layer and and yeah keep, yeah like, it's and like again, kind of like putting the puzzle together you know yeah again in in terms of engagement like the issue doesn't tell you when to which song to play and when you have to find it in the art it's in the art so when oh. people start playing a certain song in the art you're yeah. supposed to find that song and play it on the side <laughs> That's as, awesome. as well so so yeah. yeah um it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting thing i mean obviously it functions on its own even without that but again like i said it adds layers of enjoyment and reward to to the narrative so i'm very sure. excited about that um, and then I've got a couple of projects that, that I'm wor still working on. Uh, so we don't really have like a date for that yet, but, uh, it'll be at dark horse and, and potentially one at boom. Gotcha. Uh, so that's everything on the creator own stuff. Uh, 
on the DC Marvel side of things, uh, I mean, I'm still talking to Marvel about doing more stuff there. So we'll yeah. see what comes of that. But um, with DC, I continue writing Justice League Dark uh, and Catwoman. Uh, my run star on Catwoman starts from 25, which I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. uh, again, one of those characters that scratches a completely different itch for me in terms of I don't get to do just street level crime anywhere else. Yeah, uh, and so so I think that's a really fun uh, thing to to be able to write. Uh, did you and then, did you uh, yeah. pitch for Catwoman, or was that something that was the character was um, pitched towards you? Uh, well, so originally when I started writing at DC, uh, I was working with Jamie Rich, who was the editor in Catwoman at the time. Yeah, and so when he initially wanted me to write issues, it was on the Catwoman series. So I wrote. Catwoman nine, and then wrote fourteen and fifteen as part of uh, Joel's run, right. uh, and people responded really well to that. So when Joel eventually decided to to, to move on from the series, um, the the new editor on that book, or rather the editor that came after Jamie on that book, who's yeah. Jessica Chen, um, and she came to me and said, "Hey, we really liked what you did with the character in those three issues." So. Do you feel like you want to? Do you feel like you want to become the ongoing writer for this? And I said, yes, absolutely, because I get to go back and read all of uh, Darwin Cook's work on the character again. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Oh, yeah. it's awesome. No, I'm really looking forward to that run. Uh, that taken off. I need to go back and, and check out those uh, those issues. Uh, nine, fourteen, fifteen. You said. I was yeah, nine the especially. Out. Yeah, like nine especially. I'm pretty proud of because it was a one shot. Uh, and I had to set up, execute, and show the consequences of a fairly complicated heist in yeah. in the span of uh, 22 pages. So I'm pretty proud of that one. Nice. Uh, and John John Timms, who did the art on that issue, was amazing as well. So, yeah. Sure. Um, cool. And then, yeah, Justice League Dark, uh, James brought me into that book when he was moving over to, to Batman. Yeah. He said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to write this?" And I said, "Yeah, of course. Give me all the weird characters from DCU, yeah. put them in one place." Who's um, your favorite? Who's your favorite like horror uh, Justice League Dark character that you're writing now? I mean, as part as part of the team, I kind of enjoy writing all of them. Uh, yeah. I think my natural tendencies with with writing supernatural stuff kind of puts me in the direction of characters like Swamp Thing and uh, yeah. uh, you know Fate and Zatanna and stuff. And I think Wonder Woman is an interesting challenge to write as a magical character. Yeah. Given her given her sort of mythological background to her origin and stuff. So I think there's a there's a lot to be done there. Uh, but also it's a learning experience for me as to how much you can actually do with a team book because everyone has to have their screen time. So I can't just linger right. on characters, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and we're in an interesting place because I decided to continue the story that James was telling. Like, I didn't want to, I don't want to turn around and go, Hey, that thing you've been following for 16 issues. Well, yeah, that's not happening anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to do that. So we're continuing that story. Uh, and that kind of wraps up in over the next few issues, if you will. Uh, and I've written those issues. So I'm now in a place where my editors have come back to me and said, okay, where do you want to take this now? What do you want to do with it? Yeah. And so I've pretty much got a blank canvas in front of me. And that's an exciting place to be with some of these characters because when I was asked, like, what is your take on Justice League Dark? Yeah. I said, look, 
people already get their sort of big bombastic battles and, and big superhero moments with Justice League, you read the main book, right? Uh, what Justice League Dark should be doing is sort of poking into the weirder corners of the DCU. Right. Uh, and so I want to start pushing in that direction where you start seeing more unexpected characters and more unexpected scenarios than you would otherwise imagine. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Cool, cool. Well, thanks so much for yeah, that's, time. that's Yeah, that's about it. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that sounds like a, a good good amount of work and some really exciting work there on the DC side. And uh, I'm, I have to say that that Radio Apocalypse uh, with the musical cues is, yeah. is definitely the one that got my attention the most. Um, but it, it all sounds cool. So, all right, we'll be checking that out. Um, I will uh, definitely be um, uh, promoting these Savage Shores to, to people over on Comic Book Herald. But thanks so much that. for taking the time to talk. This was this was a lot of fun for me and uh, and a good yeah, conversation. Same here.